the future. Perhaps you've had your palm read or had a tarot card reading, just for fun of course, but then wondered just a little. And what about deja vu, that feeling of certainty as though you've lived through this situation before somehow? Or maybe you've had a dream, an intuition, an instinct that something's going to happen. Have you ever been right? Could you be right? The subject of this episode of the Bureau of Arts Culture is another bureau, the Premonitions Bureau, and the two men who believed or hoped, at least for a while, that you could be right. I'm Stephen Kurtz, and I've got a premonition that you'll enjoy this story and many of the others we broadcast here on Soho Radio. You can check them out, and you can join our newsletter where we give our own hints about the future and about future events that we're involved in, such as the wonderful Hale Wire Literary Festival in June. Thanks to those who've already joined us and who've supported us. Beth, Bill and Ronnie Lambert, again, who keeps giving me amazing tips. Come and join them. It's all at bureauoflostculture.com. Now, visions of the future, foresight, foretelling, divination and prophecies of populated myth literature and history. And the notion that time is not linear is even gaining currency in science. The idea that we might be able to influence the future is very attractive now. I mean, who's not fantasised about knowing the results of the lottery in advance? Maybe that's just me. But in the mid-60s, deep in the heart of those countercultural years, when many things seemed possible, when many dreamed of a new world in the future, when the boundaries of consciousness were being explored, pushed forward, when human and scientific achievements were coming thick and fast, two British men, prompted by a terrible disaster, carried out an experiment with time. John Barker, a 42-year-old psychiatrist at Shelton Hospital near Shrewsbury, but a keen interest in unusual mental conditions was one of them. And Peter Fairley, a British science journalist and broadcaster, was the other. They created the Premonitions Bureau, something like a, a very early English, undramatic version of the pre-crime unit in Philip K. Dick's Minority Report. Their story has been detailed by my guest today, Sam Knight a writer for the Financial Times, the New York Times, Harper's and Queen, and The Guardian, who now writes rather wonderful long-form stories for the New York magazine. He says he reads a lot and tries to be on time. We talk about all that, about writing, about listening, about the placebo and nocebo effects, about psychic investigations, about the voodoo death phenomenon, and of course, about his wonderful book, The Premonitions Bureau. Welcome, Sam. Hello, thank you for thank you for having me. Sam, it strikes me that you do something which these days is a bit countercultural, which is that you write long form journalism on <laughs> subjects that you <laughs> spend quite a long time researching. And given the fact that we live in a world where, like, we're all grazing these sort of bite-sized yeah. pieces of information, um, that does seem something which is running counter to the culture in some way. Is that right? It's really interesting. It's a pretty niche occupation in some ways but i do think that one of the counterintuitive things about the internet and this kind of moment of 
digital fragmentation or whatever is happening is that there is room for these longer pieces of reporting and and I think that there's a real kinship between you know between podcasting and between what I do you know there is an appetite for in-depth thinking and writing and and reporting on subjects which has kind of always been there and, and will always be there but it's just it feels like we're in a kind of flux moment in terms of how it reaches us I think it's quite interesting you make that connection with with podcasting because for this show for me which is I regard as a kind of way of educating myself and also sort of sharing that an hour can seem like quite a long time for a conversation but it's usually actually feels a bit too short and part of it for me was also to run counter to the way I've gone which is that I found myself not really being able to read anymore yeah. with any concentration. You know, I'd like lost the habit somehow. Yeah. My, my responsibility, but I can't pin some of it on the internet, you know. Yeah. And I've been re-educating myself in the ability to actually read, but also to listen and uh, to have, you know, extended conversations. And the first thing I saw by you was your essay about Adam Curtis. Okay. It was like, oh, right, okay, so people are taking time to really investigate a subject or a person in this case I, I write for the new yorker now but for about five years i wrote half the time for the guardian uh, long read but the long read i think in really quite a kind of half thought out way they just asked us once you'd written something just to come in and read it out in a in a studio at the guardian and you do that it would take an hour and they'd put it out, and they and they and they noticed rather to their surprise how popular that was. And I I, I don't think that I don't think it's parity. I don't think as many people listen to the Guardian Long Read as as read them. But it's it's real numbers. And then and the New Yorker started doing it mm. a couple of years ago, where you know the magazine goes to print on a Friday. Uh, a group of you know audio narrators actors artists you know record over the weekend and it's there to go on a monday and you know rather like what you're saying a piece of you know long-form journalism which has been going for you know 100 years in the new yorker mm. they tend to work out at about 40 minutes or an hour of audio and that works with people's commute or their run or whatever you know mm. so there's 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 something happening there yeah i think um, well we, we also love to be told stories don't we yeah. so there's that I think we kind of connects into that. And uh, certainly for me, there are books that I know that I will never actually read for yep. various reasons, but I can listen to them, mm. you know. So, I mean, I listened, I recently listened to Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, which was terrific. Yeah. But I was never going to read it. That's yeah, the yeah, truth yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah. But it, it was a long car journey. It was perfect. But let's circle back to you and your book. Because um, the other thing, apart from the actual writing of these, is that you spent time finding stories finding unusual things to write about and spending the time actually investigating them and to talk about the premonitions bureau it's a fascinating story and let's dig into what it actually is for people who don't know mm -hmm. about it and then, and then talk a little bit about how you came across it and in fact how you wrote it right so so the premonitions bureau is a, a story of an experiment that took place in the mid 60s in Britain. It was a combined effort of a, a psychiatrist called John Barker and a journalist called Peter Fairley, who was the science editor of the Evening Standard newspaper. And and this was the this was the conceit. The conceit was to can we collect the dreams and forebodings and visions of the British public on 
a kind of sufficient scale that you could use those kind of ill-shaped kind of mainly kind of dreads about the future to sort of generate uh, a warning of some disaster that might be about to occur to collect instances of kind of precognition on a kind of on a mass scale and then feed those into a computer and then a computer could kind of scan these for for sort of similarities kind of peaks and patterns as he described them to then kind of generate you know an official kind of early warning that something that mm. something bad was was about to occur um it's this experiment which is simultaneously completely far-fetched uh, and kind of you know and and kind of bonkers and engaged with the the occult and the supernatural and yet on the other hand to my mind it strongly foreshadows social networks and what we yeah. do every day in terms of pouring our feelings and instincts and 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 experiences into computers that then trawl those for peaks and patterns to feed us advertising or kind of the next TikTok video do you know what i mean there's there, there's there's i i i i loved reporting the story and writing this story for the way that it kind of it veers between what i see as quite kind of primal human and social needs mm. and and something which sounds completely kind of esoteric and kind of in barker's case was was ultimately quite dangerous to begin with what is a premonition i mean we all kind of know what it is don't we but how do we describe it so it's a great question and i think it's and i think it's a really important question Peter Fairley, who I mentioned was the sort of the journalist and the and the kind of the popularizer, the kind of front man for the experiment, uh, gave an interview to the BBC in the late 1970s, uh, in which he described a premonition as more than a hunch, more than a prediction. It's you know, right? You you know that something is going to happen. It's almost the feeling that it's already happened. Like it, it, it's the sense of a fact rather than something kind of ominous in your in your waters. It's it's knowledge. And it's knowledge that you can't have because the thing hasn't happened yet. It's forbidden knowledge and it's and it's problematic knowledge because because no one's gonna believe you. And yet you have this thing that you know and what do you do with that information? You kind of you it immediately presents you with with a choice. Do you share this? Do you do you warn people? Do you hold this inside? Do you not tell anybody? Do you hope it goes away? You know, there are instances in the book, I promise, of, of happy feelings about the future and happy, happy cases of certainty, but often it's something darker than that. There's no getting around it. Mm. Yeah. M many people would recognise the incident where, say, somebody's walked into a room and said, and I saw him there and I knew we were going to get married or I knew straight away that she was the woman for me. That would be a kind of romantic premonition, right? But yeah. in this case, there was something a bit dark in the context of Barker himself yes. because the fascinating thing is, is that he's a scientist, isn't he, really? Yeah. He's a psychiatrist. He did write this book on psychic death, which mm -hmm. is a sort of a phenomenon which you also talk about. Uh, and of course, Fairley was the science correspondent of the Evening Standard. So they were not like batty psychics, were they? No, that that's really important and that for me personally a, a strong reason why i followed the thread of the premonitions bureau and what initially sparked my interest in it was seeing that 
you know, Barker was the deputy superintendent of a large mental hospital mm. out Shrewsbury, outside Shrewsbury. He published in The Lancet and the American Journal of Medicine on a kind of broad range of questions to do with mental health treatment in the 1960s, which was kind of undergoing, you know, quite rapid reform and change and and fairly is you know, was was fairly well known in Britain in the in the second half of the nineteen sixties and he ultimately presented the moon landings on on ITN television. So he was he was literally commuting between, you know, NASA and, you know, Baikonur in the USSR covering the space race and then coming back to his his office on Fleet Street and kind of rifling through the latest slightly sort of nutty letters mm. and telephone calls into the, the Premonitions Bureau. So he was he was really the at the forefront of the latest scientific development in a somewhat go-getting kind of ex- excited frame of mind but both of these men had a a scientific kind of basis for their inquiry and they also had something to lose you you referred to it a moment ago in terms of the origins of of Barker's concern with premonitions and i think it's kind of maybe helpful just to explain the context of how he approach the subject. Barker published on a broad variety of subjects from things like mingling wards on mental hospitals between chronic patients and acute patients. You know, he was really interested in the the, the day-to-day treatment of, of mental illness. And he was also interested in fringe subjects of which one was the possibility of people being frightened to death. Um, and this occurred with him with patients that he treated kind of earlier in his career that if someone has a fixed idea that they're going to die does that have a physiological mm. component does it hasten that well that comes back to bite him of course later on as we maybe we'll do it's probably worth just going into i think you call it the voodoo syndrome yeah voodoo death here is a sidebar about the phenomenon known as voodoo death In 1942, American anthropologist Walter Bradford Cannon postulated the idea that fear could affect a person to the point that their physical condition would deteriorate in response to psychological distress. He cited examples of extraordinary deaths in Aboriginal societies, suggesting the fear of supernatural consequences caused the deaths witnessed in the natives. He discussed the example of a Maori woman who learned that the fruit she'd eaten had come from a tapu, a tabooed place. Less than 24 hours later, she was dead. Another was the example of a young man who'd fallen ill when a local witch doctor appointed a bone at him, a taboo that meant a curse of death. However, when the perpetrator explained to the young man the whole thing had been a mistake, the young man's health returned instantly. Cannon noted the similarities in each case. The individuals were both members of a society where belief in the supernatural was fiercely upheld and both had suffered what they believed to be some curse or hex. In such cases of voodoo death, the critical factor is the person's knowledge of the magic spell and the certainty that death will soon follow for anybody who breaks the taboo. This belief is backed up by the behavior of friends and relatives who treat the hex person as though they are dying. According to Psychology Today, In many cases of voodoo death, a cursed person is overwhelmed by hopelessness to the extent of refusing all food and water. In Cannon's reports, death typically came within one or two days of being cursed, so that the cause of death was clearly of psychological origin rather than the hunger or thirst, which generally take much longer. 
The phenomena of voodoo death remains controversial and poorly understood. Its relevance to advanced societies is also questionable, but doctors have noticed similar effects and it's long been known that the mere diagnosis of a terminal illness is capable of shortening life. Psychology Today points to the case of a patient in Nashville, Tennessee, who underwent surgery for cancer of the esophagus. Following the surgery, the patient, who was in his 70s, received bleak news. His liver scan was quite abnormal, suggesting extensive cancerous growths in the entire left lobe. Suspecting terminal cancer, his doctors told him that he had only a few months to live. Following the bad news, his whole purpose was merely to survive until Christmas that he might celebrate it with his relatives. He made good progress and left the hospital late in October. He was readmitted just after New Year's Day and died within 24 hours. What was remarkable about this case is that he didn't really have terminal cancer. The liver scan had been botched and the autopsy revealed only a slight node of cancerous tissue that couldn't possibly have killed him. If someone says that you're going to die, is there a possibility that that can actually... Cannon laid out a theory of um, what he called uh, a kind of sympathetic storm, which is a description of kind of hormones being released in sufficient numbers caused by fear and anxiety that could then overwhelm the bodily organs. And these are now called catecholamines and they can cause heart attacks and you know if you undergo a stressful operation you'll be given you know medication to kind of to balance this out so there is a function by which this happens and then medical researcher called uh, Kurt Richter in the 1950s observed an opposite which is that people can give up and the body shuts down out of hopelessness and these you know these are kind of medically observed phenomena and yeah, nothing mystical necessarily I yeah. mean um, you know this could be adrenal just that there so, you go and yeah. this and that corresponds to this thing mm. called the nocebo effect which is the sort of the lesser known uh, sibling of the placebo effect placebo effect is i give you an inert pill and i say hey this will probably help your headache and 10 minutes later you're like yeah i do i do feel a bit better yeah thanks very much uh, the nocebo effect is exactly the same most often observed during drug trials hey look here's this inert sugar pill yeah, some people report that they, they they feel a little nauseous when they take you 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 probably won't you probably won't you, you'll probably be fine and you know hey presto you know a third of people in the trial will then report feeling nauseous a useful example is kind of australian doctors in the 1970s working at a melanoma clinic you know reported that once people were given a diagnosis of cancer they would die sooner than they Right. than they actually kind of needed to because they would give up they had been given you know as it was called then a death sentence and he wrote this book, uh, which is which is very expensive to get now. It's second hand, I noticed, but sudden death, and got quite a dramatic cover on it. Yeah, uh, about this thing. But also uh, worth sort of adding in there too is that, um, as well as being a doctor and very concerned with the welfare of the patients, you know, at the hospital, and making some, you know, very compassionate changes to things he did have a sort of mystical experience as well didn't he is that his father he said was an accountant a precise matter-of-fact man uh, had supernatural experiences during the first world war and, and barker himself he'd been ghost hunting at borley rectory you know which people might know about as the was meant to be the most haunted vicarage and he sort of did various things even when he was a student didn't he trying to contact the ghost of john hunter the surgeon and stuff so he did have a sort of interest to, if not a predilection towards the psychic, let's call it that. He kept a crystal ball on his desk, you know, oh, let's kind yeah. of... <laughs> um, I mean, Barker, was, Barker was just a, you know, a fascinating yeah. person for me 
to write about. Mm. You know, he was a divided person. I don't really want to say a conflicted person because the two parts of his intellectual preoccupations, they interacted with each other. He was a recognisably, you know, a British intellectual of mm. the mid 20th century. You know, he's born in 1924. His father, as you say, served um, on the Western Front for, for three years where he reported having supernatural experiences, which was not terribly uncommon for kind of British soldiers at that time. Barker was a member of the Society for Psychical Research, Britain's foremost, you know, uh, organization interested in the paranormal. It's minority, but mm. it's a significant mm. minority. You know, you had kind of mass observation surveys in the 40s, you know, about a quarter of the British public believed in the supernatural. And the time in which Barker grew up and then practiced as a doctor, yeah, he was at Cambridge studying medicine and then going on ghost hunting trips on mm. the weekend, you know, and, and throughout the period of 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 establishing the Premonitions Bureau. He's in contact with the Society for Psychical Research, which is where he publishes some of his research. He's writing to the former president asking, does he know anything about this house? He hears it might be haunted. He's quite interested in buying it. His wife's not so into it. You know, he's he's and and yet during his day job he is you know, going to going to Shelton Hospital, taking the locks off the doors, looking at the prescription of antipsychotic drugs. You know, he's he's at you know he's 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 on the right side of kind of progressive uh, change in mental health. He's you know he is a, an enigmatic person. We know that there are many people who want to believe mm. there is something supernatural going on. There are many people who want to disbelieve, deny that there's anything possible could go on which is outside the explanations of of science. And and you walk the middle line, don't you? You don't either say, yeah, this premonition theory is all true or, yeah. or neither is it a lot of rubbish garbage yeah, yeah, and stuff. Yeah. And that's quite an important thing in the book. The I suppose the thing which struck me as well, Premonitions Bureau began in 1967. And now 1967 is the summer of love. And deep in the heart of what we call the counterculture, coming out of that whole 50s revolution of science and a sense also of things to be discovered, planets to be conquered, yeah. new fields to be opened. And so it was somewhat of its time, wasn't it? Because it's difficult now to imagine it being given any credence at all. And yet then, as you said already, it seemed like a logical extension in some ways of, of all the other investigations and radical things that were going on. Yeah, I, you know, it's something that I've thought about, you know, quite a bit when I was researching the book. Why did this arise at this moment? What were the conditions that made it possible? And the two real flowerings of serious engagement with the paranormal, the occult, you know, the impossible in kind of British culture in the 20th century occurred in the years leading up to and then immediately after the First World War and then, you know, this period that you're describing in the 60s. And these are both periods of rapid technological change, rapid social change and, you know, and trauma to mm. some extent. I loved reading about Freud and the occult and 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 telepathy, mm. um, which he found really really problematic because on the one hand he's trying to establish psychoanalysis a kind of serious science and so any alliance between you know spiritualism and mm. and psychoanalysis were really problematic for him kind of on a professional basis and yet <laughs> in all of his sessions he's trying to kind of obtain a state of telepathy and seeing each and he's listening out for and and he and he wrestled with this in a really kind of in a really wonderful way but you know the phrase telepathy has the same root as 
telegram and telephone mm, and tablet. Mm. You know, this is part of the same period of rapid scientific change. It just seemed like telepathy was just the next one that mm. people would figure out. Mm. And I think that Barker and Fairley both thought about premonitions in exactly the same way. Just another mind-body physics problem that we're going to figure out. And I think Barker was very keen to expand psychiatry and to take more account of what people would call the interaction between what you're thinking and your mental health and your physical health. That's pretty current. That's valid. You know, mm, he wasn't, mm. you know, he wasn't wrong. And the same way fairly saw precognition and telepathy and being able to know things that you can't know as part of well, how do our brains truly communicate with one another? Mm. They both thought that medical research and physical scientific research would would answer these questions. I mean, they weren't approaching this from the spiritual yeah. domain. Scared to death, which you referred to, and Barker was he was onto something. This project was was a wrong turn, but it wasn't that far wrong. And and you've got to make wrong turns Absolutely, if you're going if you're going to yeah. make progress. Yeah. yeah. But it's my sense it's the early seventies, and it's and in fact Yuri Geller has quite a role mm. to play in the shutdown. Mm. Of, of psychical research and the paranormal. Because it's seen as, it's, it, he turned it into entertainment. And, it's and just, it went too far. Yeah. It is now a moral obligation mm. on some sense to, to shut this stuff mm. down, mm. drive it out of our universities and dri to drive it out of our, our serious places. You know, Oxford had an institute of parapsychology in the 1960s experiments by Alistair Hardy at the Religious Experiences Unit in, in Oxford. This was just, this was part of reputable inquire in the states too i mean there yeah. was mk ultra trying to weaponize psychic powers and the same in the soviet union right so yeah. it was definitely of its time also we should talk a little bit more about the bureau mm. itself because you've got all that background going on the cultural background uh barkers are certainly open to mm. the fact that there are things that we don't understand at the moment and i think you say premonitions are impossible but they come true all the time that's your phrase in the book and mm. you know you think of a forgotten friend and out of the blue they call you know we know that right yeah. when I'm getting picked up from the airport you know my dog's in the car apparently the dog starts to get, get excited before they get to the airport now you could say well that's because he knows the smell of the airport and he smelt and associates that with people arriving maybe mm. yeah it's true but and of course uh, Rupert Sheldrake talks about morphic resonance yeah. you know that there is something which we don't understand yet possibly maybe we will do one day but they set out to turn this into a useful social tool yeah and it started of course with this tragic accident at Aberfan in 1960 Five or 66, I think 66, October 1966, yeah. Here is a sidebar about the Aberfan disaster. Jeff Edwards' primary school teacher had just started the day's math lesson when a rumble sounded in the distance. The next thing I remember was waking up, he later recalled. My right foot was stuck in the radiator and there was water pouring out of it. My desk was pinned against my stomach and a girl's head was on my left shoulder. She was dead. Over the next hours, the then eight-year-old Edwards struggled to breathe as his classmates, trapped under a torrent of liquefied coal waste, cried out around him. With every passing minute, he said, they got quieter and quieter, buried and running out of air. Around 11am, someone spotted a tuft of Edwards' blonde hair amid the rubble. A fireman used a hatchet to free him from beneath his desk and passed him to safety via a human chain. Edwards, the 10th child rescued that morning, would be the last survivor pulled from the debris. 
In total, the October 21st, 1966 disaster killed 144 people, 116 of whom were students at the Welsh turn of Aberfan's Pantglas Junior School. Much like the days that preceded it, the morning of the disaster found Aberfan, a South Wales village home to 8,000 coal miners and their loved ones, blanketed in a wet fog. Several years earlier, the local council had contacted the National Coal Board, Coal Board, which ran the nearby Merthyr Vale colliery mine, to express concerns regarding the spoil tip, a massive pile of accumulated coal waste moved during mining, situated just above the school. The NCB not only ignored these complaints, but implicitly threatened the town's livelihood. Make a fuss and we'll close the mine. At the time of the disaster, the tip in question number seven rose 111 feet above ground and contained nearly 300,000 cubic yards of waste. Set atop an underground spring covered by porous sandstone, the heap was precariously placed and thanks to recent rainy weather, extremely saturated. At 7.30 a.m., workers assigned to the tip discovered that it had started to slide. They were unable to prevent further slippage. And at 9.15 a.m., a glistening black avalanche of liquefied coal waste began hurtling towards the village below. At the time, Barker was working on his book, Scared to Death, and he heard in the kind of early confused news reports that a boy had escaped from the school unharmed, come home and died of shock. Um, and he, as I sort of mentioned earlier, in this pretty um, heedless way, just the next morning gets in his car and drives to Abervan, um and kind of arrives on on this kind of devastating and, and frightening scene because it was still raining heavily and there were kind of lots of fears that the waste was going was gonna to move again. Um, and he and he arrives at, uh, at this scene and kind of and people you know bodies are still being dug out and he he realizes even even he can't go kind of house to house trying to find the truth of what happened to this boy um and yet he sticks around and begins to to pick up instances of people having inexplicable premonitions that that this would happen and and he collects these and you know some of them particularly from two of the children who died you know they're, they're terrifying you know a boy drawing a picture the night before that seems to depict exactly what happened a girl uh, trying to resist going to school the day before saying i had a dream uh, that the, the school wasn't there anymore something black came down all over it and being sent to school by her mother and dying you can go two ways on these things on the one hand the abavan disaster in retrospect was obvious you know these huge 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 steep hills of coal tailings were being piled up uh, on top of rivers and watercourses without any technical supervision or even care uh, for years and years and years. There had been, you know, three similar landslides in the same valley over the previous 20 years, and it was only by sheer luck that people hadn't been killed before. So it was kind of, on the one hand, it was, you know, blindingly obvious that something that something terrible like this was going to occur, and yet it was also completely unthinkable. And so you can look at these premonitions and you say, okay, these are actually kind of rational fears or they are your dog barking in the car, kind of birds sensing things before earthquakes. Mm -hmm. So Barker comes there and he collects these premonitions. He calls Fairley and then Fairley 
puts out a, a kind of national call for similar instances. You know, a week later in the Evening Standard, there it is. You know, did you have a premonition of the Aberfan disaster? Which I think, again, just kind of speaks to the intellectual climate of the time. This is the Today programme, 5th of January, 1967, Mr Peter Furley. A premonition of yesterday's tragedy. And indeed, the sort of, this sort of foresight is now being taken a good deal more seriously. For instance, the Evening Standard newspaper in London now has records of more than 70 claims to premonition of the Aberfan disaster. Well, now the paper is to conduct a 12-month experiment in which a team led by their science correspondent, Peter Fairley, with the aid of a consultant psychiatrist, will try and investigate claims to premonition. Mr Fairley explained the scheme to Ian Baird. We're asking anyone who has a dream or a vision or an intensely strong feeling of discomfort which seems to involve somebody else, danger to somebody else or to themselves, to ring us at uh, Fleet Street 3000 or alternatively to write to us and we shall want to know their name and their address and the exact details of their premonition and the date and time at which it occurred. And we shall log this information and uh, look at it very carefully. And we have a small team of investigators who will attempt to corroborate whether the premonition comes true. And at the end of the year, we shall see what we've got. Do you expect to get a lot of premonitions for certain events? Well, I have a horrible feeling that we shall get a lot of letters and phone calls from cranks and, uh, and highly imaginative people. But I don't want to put these people off necessarily because a lot of highly imaginative people are sometimes thought to be the people who genuinely have a gift of premonition. Um, on the other hand, uh, we are hoping that we shall get some quite definable patterns in this and it may be peaks in it and we could then use this information to warrant a much more elaborate study, perhaps using a computer. Supposing you do get 15 people with very, very similar specific premonitions, say of an air crash, would you act on that? Well, the purpose of this experiment is not actually to give warning this year, but simply to find out whether there is anything in it or not. Clearly, if one had remarkable similarities in a large number of premonitions affecting a specific event, I couldn't possibly stand by and not at least describe to the people involved that I had received this information. On the other hand, uh, as I say, the purpose really is, is not to give warning this year, but to use the evidence, if there is any evidence, to justify the setting up of a national early warning centre at some future date. Supposing what you find out does result in people taking premonitions seriously and taking precautions, what happens if it's found that despite their precautions, the disaster, the death, the sinking still happens? I think the answer to that is that we don't know enough about the mechanism of premonition to be able to say one way or the other. I'm sure that many people have experienced situations where they've had a dream in which they themselves were running into danger. The danger has still occurred, the disaster has occurred, but they have in fact, because of their dream, changed their own behavior and avoided the disaster. Well, this is an example of how it is, or would seem to be possible, to do something about premonition and genuinely avert the disaster. They get about 70 good ones, of which about 30 have been witnessed before the disaster occurred. As in people had sort of reported, I had this dream or I had this thought, it wasn't post-event. But nonetheless, it was a collection made mm. after the event. The idea behind the Bureau was like, hey, look, let's do this in an open-ended way. Let's not do this kind of after something that we know has happened. Let's just collect them in an open-ended way and see how many of them come to pass. And of course, one of the main people in the story from now on 
is the woman who's, I think she was American actually, wasn't she? Originally? Yeah, Miss Middleton. Yeah, in, Kathleen Norman Middleton, yeah. and a sort of dance teacher in North London. Yeah. Who had a very strong premonition of the Aberfan uh, disaster. And in fact, over the next period of time, becomes one of the main people in the Premonition Bureau. She has these physical reactions and they're very vivid, right? So Barker was particularly drawn to a small subset of people who he initially met as a result of the kind of the Aberfan investigation, who, who had physical symptoms along mm. with their, their visions. And so these would be headaches, a choking feeling, you know, a feeling of kind of acute depression or nausea or something. And, and, and you know, I think this kind of speaks to the, the doctor in him. Barker's day job is in, a, is in a mental hospital of about a thousand people of whom, you know, there are four consultants. So 250 of them are, are on his books. And, and many of these are kind of acutely mentally ill people receiving no treatment of any kind, you know, no drugs, no psychotherapy, nothing, uh, just kind of marooned in this hospital. And then he's kind of going through these cases and he's just he's just thinking about this as another form of unusual workings of the human mind. And he's just trying to kind of figure out what's going on here. And yeah, and then Miss Middleton was a, a music and dance teacher uh, in Edmonton. She was a sort of a child dancer in Boston, um, around the time of the first world war and then her family who were who were english kind of lost everything in the great depression and returned to london in the 30s to these kind of reduced circumstances in suburbia and it kind of it never quite happened for her right but she was this charismatic you know larger than life music teacher who would have these visions she just compared it to you know like knowing the answer in a spelling test or kind of seeing words lit up by light bulbs she never worked as a psychic she never kind of sought to make any money out of it but she became a you know a very regular correspondent with with barker um during the course of the experiment and and of course predicted via her visions yep. plane crash that happened right along with alan hencher was another one of the other fan uh, premonition exactly yeah he got barker called them percipients, percipients uh, yeah. uh, and miss middleton and alan hencher who was a kind of switchboard operator at the post office working you know mainly night shifts became two of the most kind of active and seemingly accurate correspondence with with the bureau and so during the course of 1967 hencher seemed to predict two plane crashes one in cyprus one in stockport with kind of with fairly uncanny accuracy uh, miss middleton had a kind of memorable vision of astronaut getting in trouble which kind of coincided with the death of vladimir komarov a soviet cosmonaut who was the first first person to die in space uh, in the spring of 1967 to my mind their kind of most inexplicable one was it was seeming to have a kind of joint clear vision of a, a train crash in november um, where a train came off the tracks on its way into to Charing Cross. Miss Middleton, you know, it happened on a Sunday evening. On the Wednesday, she's in her kitchen in Edmonton, and she has a vision of a, a train crash and the words Charing Cross, and sends that into the Bureau. And Hencher, who would suffer from headaches when, you know, he was having a, a vision, was kind of, was at work and was taken, you know, taken to the sick bay with a kind of, you know, with effectively a migraine at, you know, 916, which was the time that the, the train came off, came off the tracks. So these, that made the front page of the, the newspapers in London. If we projected forwards and if there'd been more of these ports, more of the percipients actually predicting things which, which happened, 
and the bureau had grown and become mm. a recognized thing that if we just imagine that for a moment it does come up with a problem doesn't it which is that if enough people have a premonition about say a train crash then do you act on it by saying okay well we're not going to run that train that day and then of course it's difficult to know whether the prediction was accurate or not because if the train doesn't run it won't crash you get into this i think i think you call this the journal in the whale syndrome where it's difficult to actually know what used to make of the information even if the bureau's work had been validated it's a real problem for for parapsychologists and people who are kind of really gripped by the trying to explain prophecy and precognition how can you have knowledge of something if it does not happen if the, if you if you imagine kind of time as a kind of fabric which is already kind of stitched and therefore the future is is already decided and waiting to happen and somehow you get a glimpse of it if you've averted the thing if you have unstitched the disaster there's nothing to see therefore you can't have a vision it's a paradox <laughs> right there's no way around it they sort of address this in um, minority report in the you can prevent the murder from happening but you can still prosecute the person who is going to c commit the murder right you know you get tied up in a knot pretty kind mm. of instantly and barker was aware of this but you know it comes back to something you said a few minutes ago about people being really keen to believe or equally being really keen to prove that this is just the random workings of the human mind and we're all subject mm. to confirmation bias and seeing patterns mm. when there aren't there and kind of how foolish and random we are. I think Barker's mindset was of an experimentalist. If this didn't work, he was going to do something else. Do you know what I mean? The pursuit of the knowledge. Right, I mean, okay, exactly. it, it may not be useful. Or it let's may not, investigate it anyway. Let's strike out in this yeah, direction yeah. And, and see what occurs. And I think, you know, from my point of view, writing the book, when I came across the first mention of descriptions of the Premonitions Bureau, um, I'm pretty sure it was in this Arthur C. Clarke collection of, you know, 20th century strange phenomena. You know, it's right. presented to you as a couple of paragraphs mm. of something else weird that kind of mm. tells you that your supernatural kind of mm. instincts are correct. It's, and I was much more interested and remain much more interested in trying to describe the human experience of being in the experiment and the pursuit mm. and trying to find out. It's like you describing your dog barking in the car when you arrive at the airport. Let's accept for the fact that that's, that that's random or a lucky guess by your dog. But that's not how you emotionally experience it, right? That deepens your love mm. with your dog and your mm. dog's love for you. And, mm. that's, and that's real. Do you know what mm. I mean? So even if the, even if the happening is just the, the random workings of our minds and our bodies, the human experience, how you interpret that, and how it then influences how you live and how you feel is real, right? So this group of people involved in the Premonitions Bureau, no doubt prompted by confirmation bias and all sorts, you know, and, mm. and in the case of some of the people involved, certainly, you know, there are shades of, let's call it kind of neurodivergency or creative forms of madness. That's definitely happening here. But what, what emerges is a group of people who became convinced that they could see the future. Mm. And that leads to a really interesting kind of state of mind and for, for some of them, you know, real consequences in their lives. It was it was that that I wanted to write about rather than, you know, how does time work? Yeah, and Miss Middleton is interesting from that point of view because she also predicts, if that's the word, the assassination of Robert Kennedy. She'd have been having the premonitions for months, right? You know, and 
she wrote to Barker saying, you know, Robert Kennedy and assassination, didn't she? Now you could say, yeah, lucky guess. I was kind of, you know, right, fair enough, maybe. But the interesting thing about her is, as you've already said, is that she never sought to exploit. You could have done, right? Yeah, she yeah, could have yeah. set up as a psychic and, you know, charge people. She never did that. So she's very interesting from that point of view. I wanted to just also, in terms of what you're talking about, Barker's interest was the experiment, the furthering of knowledge. You know, my friend Gary Lightman has just published a book on precognitive dreaming, and Gary himself actually has always experienced precognitive dreams. Whenever he talks about it, he's always asked, "Well, you know, could you pre, you know, could you have a precognitive dream about the Grand National, or, or even something very useful about the world?" Right? And he says, "No, it's there's nothing utilitarian in the dreams themselves. You just have a dream about something which is going to happen." So. He has a dream, and it might be he's a dream. He's in his kitchen cutting a lemon, and his mm. mother rings, and then the next day that happens. It, yeah. It's not useful. Yeah, you know, you can't do anything with it. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. It, it is a phenomenon that that seems to happen. Yeah, and that in itself is kind of interesting because it does ask questions about time and consciousness. Your interest though was in the people, wasn't it? Mm. And, and so let's talk about what happened. So the bureau, you know, got going in January 1967. Um, in the spring, they have first really kind of significant kind of hit in their terms, which is when Alan Henscher seems to predict this plane crash in Cyprus. He predicted that 123 or 124 people would, would die in a plane crash, or, you know, over mountains, uh, you know, lights flashing, you know. And then, you know, three weeks later, 124 people die in a plane crash in Nicosia in Cyprus. Uh, and the connection seems strong to the people in the Bureau. So they're kind of excited. They feel like it's kind of, it's up and running. And then and then Henshaw calls Barker in the middle of the night at one o'clock in the morning and says, look, I have, I, you know, I have a terrible feeling about you. I'm worried about your safety. Um, I think, you know, and Barker says, do you think I might, do you think I'm going to die? And Henshaw says, yeah, I think you are. And he warns Barker that his life is in danger. And so if you're John Barker, you're, you're handing in, you know, the manuscript of, of Scared to Death, this book precisely about the phenomenon of being told you're going to die. Um, and you're running a premonitions bureau and you're kind of one of your star percipients has just given you exactly this warning. Uh, and Encher continues these warnings and then Middleton uh, joins him and she also has dreams about Barker. And so he becomes the kind of, the experiment kind of closes in on him. When I read about this and then came across kind of an amazing memo that Barker himself wrote about about this experience, that's that's when I knew I wanted to write the book, this very peculiar and kind of sinister kind of turning in of the subject on the researcher, I just thought was a really fascinating and sort of state of mind to find yourself in. And Barker, and Barker was aware of it. You know, Barker wasn't a cold, distanced, uptight kind of British, but which he could have been. But it's kind of clear from his from his writing and his letters and his correspondence that he was kind of emotionally engaged with what was and with questioning what was it as well wasn't yeah. he questioning yeah. is am i basically subject to this nocebo sudden death effect he was scared but he was also excited he was like where's this mm. where's this where's this going where, where's this going exactly on the day august 18th 1968 middleton finds herself awake in the early hours she's choking and gasping for breath calls out for help and that's the day that he suffers a brain hemorrhage at home in yockleton and he died later that day yeah, the the day to day chronology is a tiny bit more complicated. He, he suffered this, the hemorrhage on 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 the Sunday, and but and Middleton has this experience, and she didn't know uh, in at dawn two days later, and that's the day he died in hospital. Yeah. Um, Sam, why don't we 
talk a little bit about how you came to write it. And in fact, the process, because that involved research, met uh, Barker's family, right? I worked on this story for three or four years, just kind of chipping away and kind of stealing a day or two here um, to go to the archives of Sheldon Hospital in Shropshire or to order up old copies of the electoral rolls, trying to trace people who were involved in the Bureau. For instance, there's an amazing woman called Jennifer Preston, who was Fairley's assistant at the Evening Standard, and she was the person who kind of collected the premonitions and sorted them into different categories. She was the she was the custodian, if you like, of the of the actual uh, you know, the filing cabinets, the sort of the machinery of of the Bureau, if you like. And so trying to you know, the book is built on you know the survival of cardboard boxes of letters and 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 bits and bobs in 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 people's attics and that was just a pretty painstaking process to uh to go through but there were some really you know fortunate leads in that one of one of which was a very very wonderful woman called Christine Williams who was a a pupil of Miss Middleton the music teacher Miss Middleton kind of aged Christine cared for her and then when she died you know cleared her house lovingly sorted out all of her possessions and records so you know amazing photographs and memos and poems and and a, and a memoir that that Miss Middleton wrote that was kind of key to my reporting and then as you as you say Barker's children he had four children and that was a really slow and kind of patient process on both sides as we got to know each other and they ultimately, you know, and I'll always be extremely grateful to them, you know, entrusted me with, you know, many of his kind of writings and letters and things like that, which gave me, you know, as much insight as I could as I could have to write the book. It, but it was quite a surprise to them, isn't it? Because in a way, strange thing was, is that you were telling them the story of their own father, which was not the story which they yeah. knew about. Yeah, so I first wrote a kind of article version of the, of the book in The New Yorker, which came out in early 2019 and when I was working on that I'd made some really good discoveries in the archives of the Society for Psychical Research. I'd been in contact with uh, Christine like I just described but the Barker family as as I would do in their situation 10 times out of 10 they didn't know what to do with me. Um, this was 50 years ago. They did not really know the details of their father's scientific research and this kind of strange, totally like anonymous writer was turning up on the doorstep trying to find out everything I could. And and they weren't mean to me or hostile. They were just like, do your thing, but we're not going to be part of it. And then when the article appeared, they learned a lot. I think that they could they could see that I was trying to sort of write about him in a kind of respectful and careful way. And that, as I said, kind of led to this mm. process of us, 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 us meeting and getting to know each other. Um, and I likewise made contact with Peter Fairley's children. And, and yeah, there was an amazing moment where all of Barker's family and Fairley's family and Christine and some other people who've been involved at the Evening Standard at that time were kind of all gathered in together. And it was, it was a great moment. It's a very sympathetic uh, portrait of them both. I mean, and also fascinating, but also because it brings his work back into the light. Thanks, Sam. I mean, just to ask you a couple of questions, though, mm. is that do you have any premonitions? I don't. I mean, as I, you know, as I said a, a minute ago, it was really the story of a scientist or a researcher getting in too deep 
to me was just an irresistible human subject to to try and follow and to explore and to learn as much as I as I could about and 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 likewise these these settings of a dilapidated mental hospital in the throes of reform Fleet Street during the summer of like you know the world and the kind of characters in the world I just wanted to know everything I kind of possibly could about them and to and to write about it as as accurately as I could and I think you know I'm I'm a magazine writer that's what I do and it became increasingly important to me to try and write this fairly eccentric story as straight as I could and just like I'd write about any other thing I write about politics and sport and science and all sorts of things and I just wanted to approach this the same way that I that I would anything else and and to to allow it to exist on its own terms without my intellectual agenda what's next for you i've almost kind of caught up with my with my obligations at at the new yorker and i'm you know i'm really keen to write another book i'm kind of hoping to create a bit of space this year to sort of to find out what that might be you're not on your premonitions about it i'm assuming <laughs> no that would be handy <laughs> i wouldn't say no <laughs> sam thanks very much for coming to the bureau of lost culture thank you for having me real pleasure so, listener, what about you? Have you had any premonitions, precognitive dreams, intuitions that came true? Is time a line, or a circle, or a spiral, or something completely different? We live in such radical, changing times that it wouldn't really be surprising, would it, if we suddenly found out that there is some basis to our premonitions, even that time travel is possible. I was once on a plane from Kansas to New York. The plane was absolutely full, and it was delayed several times, first of all by an unruly passenger, then by somebody claiming that the pilot was drunk, and then by some mechanical failure. This was at a time when, due to 9-11 and terrorism and stuff, everybody was a bit edgy, and everybody on the plane was getting increasingly edgy, including me. I happened to be sitting next to somebody called Jeffrey Wands, a TV psychic. Now, I really don't believe in all that stuff, or believe that I don't believe in all that stuff. But he took a phone call from his wife, and his wife was saying to him, get off the plane, there's something wrong about this situation. But he said to her, look, I'm a psychic. I would know if something was going to happen, and this plane is absolutely safe. Our flight going to be without problems. Well, guess what? I was relieved to hear it. And for that moment, at least, I decided to believe in his abilities and his powers to predict the future. I have also carried out extensive research into a reputed time machine in Brompton Cemetery here in London. I'll put a link to that along with a link to Sam's book in the show notes. But as I said earlier, in our own future, we'll be at the Hay Festival in June with three events about the past and the future of counterculture. Come and join us. I've got a premonition that you'll really enjoy it. Thanks for listening. We're going to play out with our usual sponsor, The Real Tuesday World. This is a track from their future album, Junk Shop Melodies. See you next time.